Maybe a generation ago, less than a generation ago, the idea that anyone could walk into their boss's office and have a frank discussion about working a four-day work week would have seemed absurd, but it is now a reality, and the experiment that one visionary businessman, Andrew Barnes, performed at his own New Zealand-based financial business has grown into nothing short of a worldwide movement. Today, the two Ds have Andrew to talk about four-day week global and the movement that challenges all previous assumptions and could change the face of work as we know it. It's all here on Dave and Darm Demystify. From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Darm Demystify show. Dave and Darm Demystify Show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Darm Mystery. Demystify. Welcome to today's show. And today joining us from Auckland, New Zealand is Andrew Barnes from Four Day Week Global. Andrew, welcome. And to get us started, why don't you just tell us a bit about yourself and a bit about Four Day Week Global as well? Yeah, well, it's great to be here, David. Look, I mean, I'm an accidental evangelist for the Four Day Week. And how I got there was that I had a, I guess, financial services business in New Zealand called Perpetual Guardian. And back in 2018, I wanted to work out how I could make the business more productive. And I've been reading all these articles, mainly in The Economist magazine, about productivity being really effectively between two and a half and three hours a day. And I wondered if I could change that because I assumed that was going on in my business as well. So I wondered if I could change it by saying to my people, look, what would you do differently if I gifted you a day off but what I wanted you to do was rethink how you work so that we could do the same activity in four days rather than five. And so we ran a little pilot in our own company. And then we found that productivity actually went up 25%. And we got all sorts of other benefits. So that was really how this started. You know, I'm an investment banker by background. I had this legal services business. But what I was doing was to try and address a little problem in my own company. What I didn't expect is that this whole thing would suddenly become a global conversation. And it was that global conversation that prompted us to create Four Day Week Global to try and help other companies go on the journey we went on. Can I ask, Perpetual Guardian, is it a sort of fairly traditional financial services firm? Perpetual Guardian, interestingly, is one of the oldest continuously trading businesses in New Zealand. It was a creation of two trust companies, Perpetual Trust and New Zealand Guardian Trust. So we're talking about one of 
the dullest, most boring, most staid <laughs> industries you could ever possibly have. We are a statutory trust company. We're incorporated under Acts of Parliament. We do wills. We do trusts. We do estates. We also supervised the New Zealand capital markets in terms of we were the supervisor for things like managed investment schemes and so on and so forth. So we're very firmly in the legal services and financial services space. That's what we do. But we are not a new dynamic organization that's been created. We were literally taking an organization with 130 years of history and saying, how do we make that different in the 21st century? It's fascinating because if companies are looking at things like full day weeks, they would probably be at the cutting edge technology fintech end rather than a very traditional business. So what kind of triggered this thought in your head that actually reducing the working week might have benefits? And, you know, it sounds like productivity that sort of improved pretty dramatically. But what triggered the thought around the working week for you? Well, essentially, I figured that, and again, this was prompted by these economist articles. So what they were saying is that true productivity is two and a half to three hours a day. Now, why is that the case? Well, statistically, for example, you're interrupted in an open plan office once every 11 minutes, takes you 22 minutes to get back to full productivity. People look at their mobile phone statistically about once every five minutes. You have meetings that you shouldn't attend that go on for far too long and there was a little bit of an experiment done by microsoft in japan on this and what they did was they said no more than five people in a meeting no meeting longer than half an hour use microsoft teams and they got a 39.9 percent improvement in productivity so what i was doing was bringing together a lot of this disparate intel and understanding that if i could change behavior a little bit of you know if you think about it people do a lot of things on your dime they have to deal with home problems they have to go out and you know track down that plumber that they couldn't get a hold of or they doing things that are not work related we found for example in our trial that internet surfing on the top five non-business related websites drop 35 percent you know people are doing things other than work when they're in work so my thesis was that if i give you an incentive a day off what will you stop doing what will you change how you do and will you actually re-engineer a little bit of personal behavior Pull all of that together, will I get higher levels of productivity? Will I eliminate some of the busy or non-productive activity that's going on in my business? That's all I was trying to do. You said it became a global conversation. How did that happen? <laughs> well, well, look, what happened was that I thought, I'm going to get one article in the New Zealand Herald. Um, maybe our morning show on telly, we're talking about 40,000 people watch that, will go, hey, this is a crazy idea. And yes, we did get that. But then what happened 
is the story just got picked up by, I think, a UK paper that had a New Zealand correspondent. The next thing, this thing just went ballistic. It went around the world that we were getting phone calls from all over. We stopped counting when we announced this. We stopped counting at about 10,000 articles. Jeez. It, it was wow. ridiculous. <laughs> then when we announced the results of the trial, it did it again and tens of thousands of articles. We estimated at one point that the global audience had hit five and a half billion people. And this is for a little experiment in a 300-person legal slash financial services business in New Zealand. My best story, two good stories on this. One was we were the second most read story in the New York Times after the Trump-Putin summit. Wow. And also, <laughs> my partner Charlotte and I, Charlotte is currently the chief executive for Airy Global. She and I were doing the Peking Paris car rally, and we're in the middle of Siberia. And the phone rings in the car, and they said, you've just been name-checked by Dmitry Medvedev. I can't remember if he was president or prime minister of Russia at that time, who's read about this trial in Perpetual Garden and thinks it's the future for Russia. <laughs> and we ended up, you know, in this town in back end of Siberia with television crews from Moscow descending on the town so that we could do an interview. Did I expect this journey? No. But you know what? When asked, wherever you are in the world, 80% of workers say, I want more time and I need more time to do things that are important to me and important to my family. So... I shouldn't be surprised, but I still am, right? <laughs> well, it sounds like it really hit a nerve. It's something that people really can relate Want. to. I cannot believe there's anybody who kind of doesn't sit at work sometimes going, do you know what? I could be more productive. So going back to the trial you ran, you'd probably have had to have quite a grown-up conversation with your employees about, you know, trusting them and what you as a business would want out of this. Talk to us about that. What was the dialogue that you had with your staff around this? Well, anybody who wants to see the announcement, it's up either on our four-day week global website or on YouTube, which is quite interesting because in a way I said when we launched it, I said, look, actually, I've got this crazy idea and I don't know how we're going to do it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give it up to you, my team here, to think about how you are going to do things different. And as you say, this is a very honest and mature conversation between me as the employer and you as the employees, and that you need to take it seriously. So if you take it seriously, I'll take it seriously. And I think it's interesting, you know, if you think about it, that should be the relationship you have with your employees. This is not something new. You shouldn't be recruiting people into your company that you can't have a mature conversation and i think the other side of it though is that traditionally when we think about process re-engineering in any organization what we do is we have a conversation that says something along the lines is we're bringing in a consultant they're going to have a look at the inefficiencies and the employees hear one thing and one thing only and that is we will want you to do more with less and there are going to be job losses there's going to be you know reconstruction 
This conversation is a slightly nuanced conversation. It's saying, I need you to do that process re-engineering, that thought re-engineering, but actually the benefit that flows is actually you get more time off. When you have that conversation and you frame it in that way, and provided there is trust, this is not a silver bullet that will work for every company. If you've got appalling work relations, it isn't going to fix the problem because both sides have got to trust the other. The employees have got to know that the employer is not going to get all these efficiencies and then say, great, now I'm going to get rid of 20% of you and I'm going to play that game. And at the same time, the employer has to recognize that the employees are going to do their bit to make this happen. But the reality is, it's been borne out by our trials around the world. People recognize this for what it is, which is, you know, a fantastic opportunity to reset work-life balance, how we think about work, and how we think about, you know, productivity. How does the scheme actually work then? So is everyone off? The company only operates four days a week, or do people get to choose the day that they have off? Do you try to make sure that there's somebody in the office all the time, or how does it work? Yeah, let's talk about my company because I think my company is a good example of this. We have 17 retail branches around New Zealand. We can't close. You know, we have to be operational the same way that, right. you know, a bank, for example, would be operational. So in our organization, we use this formula that we call the 180 100% pay, 80% time, provided we get 100% productivity. So it's about working less. Four-day week is good clickbait, but in reality, what that means is some people in the organization, they will take a day off. Some take a couple of half days. Working parents often go, you know, having a day off doesn't help me, but actually doing reduced hours so I can drop the kids off at school and pick the kids up, that works for me. So in our case, our organization works normally. How we service customers can't be compromised. We work the same hours that we've always worked. How the teams structure it is that each team works together. So people take the time off that's important to them. Obviously, not everybody can have a Friday off every week or a Monday off every week. So that doesn't happen. It's often a rotating day. Now, other companies will take a different approach, especially smaller businesses, PR firms, recruitment firms, quite often they say, look, actually, we're going to take a day. We're going to close for a day. And they actually do close. But there is an accounting firm, for example, in Western Australia. And what they did was that they said, you know, this is really interesting. People in the team then said, well, look, I'd quite like to work weekends. And that's when we want to do our days, some of our days. So they went to a seven-day operation as opposed to a five-day. I mean, what this does is it breaks the connection between the traditional nine to five, five days a week and starts to have a conversation about time and productivity. And therefore, I'm no longer constrained by the thinking that says this is how a working week works. So some people can say, look, I'd like to work in the evenings or I'd like to work early mornings. And you can actually therefore expand your 
sphere of operation, if you will, to actually encompass evenings and weekends. Once you've got away from a working day, starts at nine and ends at five. I've always argued the case that, you know, if you're on a exercise bike and you're doing your emails, are you working or you're exercising, right? And should that count? Is that work time, you know, because it seems that we never switch off necessarily, right? But it would be a good thing if people actually did an entire day where they did switch off. I read a book some time ago by Victor Semler called The Seven Day Weekend. And it was exactly this, you know, questioning what hours people work. It also went into different people's body patterns attuned to better productivity at different times of the day. So why are we all trying to shove everybody into a nine to five, right? Yeah, look, I think that's an absolutely, you know, key point. So first of all, the nine to five is a construct of the last hundred years. A lot of people will credit Henry Ford for introducing the five-day week, introduced, of course, because he wanted to make a market for motor cars, which is fascinating. If you're all you're going to do is just go to church on Sunday on your day off, you didn't need a car. But actually, you know, if you had Saturday off, then suddenly you had a day to take the family somewhere. So I'm going to buy my Model T as long as it's black. Now, the same thing, you know, then applies now. So we've got a knowledge-based economy where instead of it being physical activity, it's mental activity, but we have carried on with a construct of working that is related to repetitive manufacturing industry rather than saying, Mm -hmm. how do we enable people to perform cognitively better and that means a change i think in the working pattern now also what we've done and it's been made worse i think by the pandemic home time is just becoming work time so i often refer to this as you know we're not working from home we're actually sleeping in the office (laughs) because suddenly you know i'm going to pull that piece of work out and i'm going to do it late at night now the beauty of the four day reduced hours week is it enables us to put some boundaries around this, to actually say, no, there is time when you need to not work. And I need you not to work because what I'm trying to do is change your cognitive ability, if you will. I want you rested. If you're not rested, you're not going to be as productive. You're not going to be thinking as clearly as you might be. And we know that. So what I'm trying to do here is create a new paradigm where we recognize that human capital, we often talk about our mechanical capital in companies, and we get a machine and we maintain it and we turn it off and we fix it. But our human capital, we've not done the same. We just glibly think you can run it into the ground. And that leads us to the one in four, one in five of the workforce that has a stress or mental health issue, which in turn means they're not as productive. So if we start to rethink and we look at human capital, what this is about is making the environment so that that can work efficiently and effectively rather than trying to treat it, if you will, like a machine. Going back to your point around the management consultants coming in. So what this really feels like, it's sort of a dialogue with your staff 
peer-to-peer rather than parent-child. Like, And people talk about empowerment, but this feels like a real point where people can say, well, look, this is what I'm prepared to do. And that gets them more vested in to the job itself. Rather than the traditional model, it's very easy to just go, I'm on a treadmill, I'm biding my time, or whatever it is. And there, the sort of bad habits of looking at phones and all the other stuff creeps in. Talk to me about how you're going to kind of be doing this in the best possible way. Yeah, look, what you're doing, I think, is recognising that things that stop productive output are many and varied. It can be interruptions, right? It's one of these great statistics that if you continue to interrupt it at work, it's the equivalent of working under the influence of marijuana. Right? <laughs> None of that is going to be particularly good for productivity. You've got distractions, noise. How many times do you have little meeting tables between the desks if it's an office? And, you know, somebody's having a far more interesting conversation over there. All of these little things create disruptions. And what you're saying to the staff is, how do we address all of these things? Now, in a management consulting position, in a top-down direction coming from the chief executive and chasing, none of these things, none of these little things will ever get mentioned. They will never come to the surface because of themselves, they are lots of little things. But if you therefore can get the staff to own it, they adjust all these little things. So what we found is a 25% improvement in productivity without any process changes. Process changes are coming as part of the process, but we got improvement in productivity just by getting all of these little things together, things like a quiet hour where you couldn't be interrupted for an hour. And that's the equivalent of three hours of normal work. You do that every day. You know, you are starting to get some serious improvements in productivity. So you're right. This is getting its bottom-up re-engineering of your organization, where what you're doing is looking to eliminate either busyness, non-productive activity, or just straight out non-work-related activity, going on a website, seeing what the Kardashians are doing this morning. <laughs> it could be because of the great job you did in terms of promoting four-day weeks. But my impression is that sort of New Zealand and Australia perhaps are leading the way around this topic. So I just wondered what you thought about that. New Zealand, absolutely not. We're nowhere, which is very surprising. I mean, our Prime Minister is often quoted as being in support of a four-day week, but practically the government here aren't. Australia... A little bit more advanced conversation, I have to say. Um, there has been some discussion up to the Office of Prime Minister and Cabinet historically. The country that's leading this, surprisingly, is the United Kingdom. The conversation in the UK is incredibly mature. Obviously, at the moment, through Four Day Week Global, we're partnering with the UK Four Day Week campaign as well. We're running the world's largest pilot on reduced hours working in the UK. It's literally, the pilot itself is just finished. The results will be out in February. Wow. You know, that is the UK of Western economies is actually probably leading the way. Now, you've always had lower working hours in places like, you know, Finland, Sweden, Holland. 
they've traditionally worked less hours and actually are quietly productive. So you have to accept that they are, in terms of de facto four-day week, they are further down the path than, say, the UK is. But the UK is really moving fast. You actually, of course, have got countries that have now gone to it, the UAE. Bizarrely, has actually yeah. gone to four day week, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for a whole heap of other reasons. But this is something though that's gone from nowhere. We were the hobbits in New Zealand doing something crazy four years ago, and it's now a mainstream topic of debate around employment, even in the United States. Whereas you know, four years ago, it was fringe. It's not necessarily mainstream practice, but it's mainstream discussion. We're coming towards the end of our time, but we've heard four-day week global mentioned a lot of times. I'm still not clear. I'm sorry if you mentioned it, but what is it exactly that they do as a company? What Great you question. do as a company? <laughs> yeah, well, look, very, very straightforward. <laughs> we suddenly realised with the four-day week experiment in PG that Actually, this had hit the zeitgeist, the global zeitgeist, and that everybody was talking about. So we created Four Day Week Global as a not-for-profit. I wrote a book on how to do the Four Day Week, which we put out there. But we created Four Day Week Global to run programs, pilot programs around the world. And so we're running one, for example, in the UK at the moment, which had, I think, 70 businesses came into the pilot we bring in people who've done it before. We give lessons on how we think you can operate a four-day week. We give you a mentor from somebody around the world who's done it in your sector. And what we do is we make, create these pilot programs to make a safe space for chief executives, for businesses, for boards to experiment with bringing in reduced hours working or a four-day week. And... We've run pilot programs now in New Zealand, Australia, the US, Canada, Ireland, the UK. We've got upcoming programs in South Africa, Israel, Europe generally, and then Portugal and Spain. And what we're trying to do is, at the same time, we run research, which is coordinated out of Boston College in Massachusetts. And what we're doing is we are researching what is the impact, not just on productivity in the businesses, but what is the impact on the employees. And so we're bringing all that together to create a body of work that makes it safer, again, for countries, companies to have the conversation about why changing work practice is a rational sensible business idea what about people like virgin how does that fit in because virgin have this thing where you can decide how many holidays a year you have right so not only could you reduce the week but then people decide how many days off a year the, they the have. problem actually with off of those policies i mean superficially they're very good but the reality is nobody takes it <laughs> that's yeah is that the, what they yeah, rely they on then they partly do because of course the problem is if everybody else doesn't take it, you are going to be the person who's taking unlimited leave. And that, therefore, is one of the problems. One of the beauties of this policy is we, I mean, certainly my own company, for example, the only people who are mandated, who absolutely had to do it with my senior leadership team, you have to walk the talk. 
Now, the minute everybody in the organization is doing this, they're all walking the talk, you are not disadvantaged if you do it. Yeah. The problem with optional policies, flexible working, homeworking, unlimited leave, if they are optional, that somewhere in your organization there will be somebody who doesn't do it, generally in the chain of command, and they will look down on the people who do. And that's what you've got to stop because the minute that happens, people, you know, monkey say, monkey do, so to think, you go and literally sit there and say, if my boss isn't doing it, I'm not going to do it. And that's a key issue here. I believe that you have to make sure that everybody believes that it is okay. And that's great because it also works on things like gender because one of the challenges we can continue to bring women up we can continue to try and move away from 80 percent working for 80 percent pay recognizing that often you know women returning to work are often the most productive people you've got because they've got great time management skills but we're not going to achieve the equality that we want unless we make it okay for our men to step out and that's what this does. This actually says, guys, here's your day. Now what are you going to do with it? And the great stories in my company, a lot of companies that have done this around the world, aren't from the women. They're from the guys who are being grandfathers or fathers or being carers. And, you know, I have a guy in one of my offices who spends two afternoons with his granddaughter. And when he talks about it, he cries. Now, you ask me why this works, that's why it works. Because I'm giving you something that you can't put a price on. And that's what we see. We saw it from the US research that a mass of people who were doing the four-day week in the US trial, when, when asked, said, you're going to have to pay me more than 50% more for me to go back to a five-day week. I mean, not 10%, not 20%, 50%. And 13% of them said, you just can't pay me enough to go back. Wow. Incredible. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us, Andrew. It's such, a, such an interesting topic, you know, for all yeah. of us, very relevant. So thank you for joining us and for the insight. It's been a fantastic chat. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Dan Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.